to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So grateful that you're here with me for another week. I read recently, and I've been racking my brains trying to remember who wrote this, so I I apologize that I I can't source this, but I, I read something very, very wonderful about books. Someone, I wish I remembered who, said, you could create someone's biography by simply listing the books they read because those are the those are the items that fill our souls that fill our minds with ideas and over the last couple of years i've been very lucky to be able to fill my life with the works of lori erickson she is a splendid travel writer she often writes about pilgrimages about journeys that have a spiritual component to them. And that's what she's done in her most recent book. It's called Every Step is Home, A Spiritual Geography from Appalachia to Alaska. Hey, Lori, thank you so much for appearing once again on The Travel Show and for writing this wonderful book. Well, thank you so much, Pauline. It's great to be back visiting with you. So I got to ask you first, the title. Every step is home. How, how did you come up with that? What does that mean to you? Well, the it's actually from a quotation from a um, book of poetry by a 13th century Buddhist teacher named Dogon. And the full quote is, but do not ask me where I am going as I travel in this limitless world where every step I take is my home. Hmm. And um, I thought it was so beautiful the first time I read it. And I really like the idea, you know, every step is home, the sense of cherishing every place, cherishing every moment, and treating it with the same sort of attention and care that we do our homes, no matter where we are. Yeah, beautiful, lovely. And no matter where you are, you usually in your other books, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I feel like you've visited more far-flung places, but this book really concentrates on the United States. Why is that? Well, in part because I hadn't traveled so far afield in, in my other books, and I, I started the book with the intention of introducing my readers to wonderful places here in the United States and reinforcing the idea that you don't have to step on an airplane, you don't have to travel abroad in order to have really rich and meaningful travel and spiritual experiences. And then when COVID started, that also reinforced the fact that I, I didn't want to travel too far abroad. I, a lot right. of the research for this book was done while camping. And they're often out-of-the-way places that are not heavily traveled. Yeah. As a program note to our listeners, the second half of this show is going to be an interview with one of the editors of National Geographic's Great Outdoors USA. She talks about all of the great outdoor places you can go in the United States, many of which are actually in Lori's book. And you you divide the book by element, but you go beyond earth, wind, fire, and water, which are, to me, the classic elements. Where do these elements come from, and which ones do you talk about in the book? Mm-hmm. Well, I knew that I wanted, each of my books has both a travel component and then sort of a, another theme that I'm playing around with. And so in this book, every chapter is focused around 
an idea or element, as you said. So sacred water, sacred air, sacred stone, sacred fire. Those are the ones that people usually think of with elements. But then I mix in ones that I think are are more unusual, uh, trees, sacred trees, sacred caves, sacred animals, sacred lights, sacred astronomy are a few of them. And so each chapter is a chance to describe a trip, but then also to to ruminate on that idea of, well, what is sacred astronomy and how has it been thought of throughout human history in many different cultures? Yeah. I, I don't know what this says about me, but I found myself most drawn to the chapters that deal with the underworld, that deal with caves and dirt. And dirt was surprising to me that that it plays such a major role uh, in religious practice. Can you talk about the place you went to? I think it was in New Mexico mm-hmm. and what the traditions are there. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the place is called El Santuario de Chimayo, and it's in New Mexico, as you said. It is a Spanish mission church built in the early 1800s that has long been associated with healing dirt. I think many people are familiar with the idea of healing waters, you know, lures, sure. for example. Healing dirt is more of a stretch. Probably the, the sacred site uh, was originally associated with healing waters for the indigenous peoples who lived in that part of New Mexico. The springs dried up, but the tradition of healing still became connected to that place. And so it's a beautiful, simple church where people from around the world come the church itself is is quite small and simple. And then off to the side, there is a place where you can kneel down and, and take a small container of dirt. The dirt is replenished. I mean, there's no sense that it's miraculously restored. You know, there are, well, I love that. You, you talked to the priests and they said, no, no, we're, we're constantly putting dirt in there. Yep. It's, it's, that doesn't regenerate. That's right. That's right. But I was very moved to be there. Uh, for one thing, to see the visual um, symbols that people had left their crutches hanging on the wall and small milagros, which are small little metal symbolic tokens that are um, are used as a symbol of a prayer. But that idea of sacred dirt was so resonant for me. I'm a farmer's daughter from Iowa. And so <laughs> I have a very strong sense of the miraculous qualities of of soil, of dirt that sustains all life. On Earth, and um, well, but before we get into that, just the, the crutches were hanging uh-huh. because people feel that by rubbing the dirt on their legs, they were healed. A lot of people yeah. feel that this this dirt has miraculous powers, even though it's it's constantly being replenished. And I loved the explanation you gave you gave that the priest gave. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, "No, we're we're replenishing it, but there's there's something that the the faithful bring to the dirt too." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, in in places that that do have these miracle stories associated with them, you know, I I think. The way for us, you know, to moderns to think about it, you know, even if you're not, you know, you maybe not believe the physical cures, though I, I do think that they can happen. I do think there is a kind of healing that that often takes place uh, at places like this, a healing of the heart, uh, oh. a healing of sorrow, a healing of grief. And, or the placebo effect, as you placebo, say in the book. Yes, the placebo effect. And but I think we often need a place to have that happen. You know, and theoretically it could happen anywhere, but something about the journey, something about the place, something about uh, all these visual cues of other people's prayers and other people's sorrows and tragedies that they have brought there. 
really calls forth something from us that is often wordless, but still very powerful. Yeah. Well, now I interrupted you, but let's get back to the soul-inspiring properties of of dirt or soil, as a geologist you spoke to begged you to call it. (laughs) So soil is not... A, a, a given soil is the 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 manner in which soil is created is incredibly long and labor intensive right can you talk a little bit about the geology of soil sure well i during the research for the book i i traveled to chimayo and did a lot of reading on my own but i also interviewed a geologist who specializes in soil and he did a wonderful job of sort of opening up the mystery of soil. The fact that if good soil takes thousands of years to be created, it's the result of organic material, of minerals of ground from you know dirt particles, or excuse me, from stone particles. Soil moves. Uh, it flies through the air. P- parts of the Sierra end up in South America every year, for example. When you told me that the Sahara Desert uh, can fly thousands of miles, parts of that soil and cover areas nowhere near it. Exactly. And replenishes uh, soils in other parts of the world. Also, there are different types of soils. Every state has its own uh, state soil. I didn't realize that, for example. Yeah. Um, because soil is, is once you start studying it, it is, it is a world unto its own. It's full of organisms. It's full of different combinations of materials. And so the soil of Iowa is very different from the soil of New Mexico or Texas. or uh, And that's one of the reasons why what grows from it is different. But mm-hmm. it also, I think, knowing about the, the properties of soil, again, makes us value it more. And, and we don't value it enough. Here in Iowa, way too much fine topsoil gets washed away down the Mississippi River and every year, for example. Um, and, and that's that's a problem in terms of growing plants. I mean, uh, there is actually a soil crisis in uh, this country right now. Absolutely. And the, and the rich organic nutritive qualities of soil are leaching away in many places. And so I hope that's sort of a, one of the subtexts of the book. I hope that by encouraging people to look at these seemingly ordinary elements through the lens of the sacred that we will try to protect them more. Yeah. Well, one thing you say in the book that stuck with me was, in a handful of soil are more organisms than there are human beings on the planet Earth. Yeah. Uh, That that to me was (laughs) mind-blowing. Yep. Yep. I was blown away by that too. Yeah. 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 And so, so you have this one church uh, where people go and they they uh, worship the soil and they bring it home with them. But you also make the point that that uh, dirt is part of Ash Wednesday and, and part of other spiritual traditions. Can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. It is certainly part of Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of Lent uh, in Christian churches, when the, the tradition is that uh, people have a, a cross made out of dirt put on their foreheads. And as that's done, uh, the the pastor priest reminds them that from dust they came and to dust they will return, which is a reminder of mortality as stark as can be. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that same sense is part of many different religions, actually, the sense of the cycle of life, 
of the fact that we are part of the earth. You know, we're not separate from it. Another thing I write about in in that chapter is the many traditions that have a creation story that involves dirt. Hmm. Uh, at the beginning of the Bible, the story of Genesis that God creates uh, Adam out of out of dirt, and that the broad parameters of that story are really echoed in a lot of different creation myths across across history and time. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, looking at another element or place beneath our feet. You also have a chapter on caves and one particular one in Tennessee where a pretty fascinating discovery was made. Tell our listeners about that. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think sacred caves is probably might be the biggest stretch of any of all the sacred elements that I describe in my book. But if you look at human history, humans have been worshipped in caves for longer than any other religious tradition, at least 20,000 years. And we know we know that because of the the art that they left behind. Probably the most famous is in Lascaux Cave in France. The incredible uh, drawings of animals that that gallop across the the cave walls deep underground. For a long time, scientists thought that there was no equivalent in North America to that sort of dark zone cave art, as they call it, in the deep recesses of caves. And then about uh, twenty fifteen years ago, they discovered. Um, a number of caves on the Appalachian Plateau that had this sort of art. Now, it's not as beautiful as what you might know of that exists in France, but the remarkable thing is that it is there at all. It means that thousands of years ago, people risked their lives with just torches um, to go down into twisting, winding caves to create symbolic art. And Dunbar Cave in Tennessee is the only public cave where you can see this art. There are dozens and dozens of other caves that have been found with art, but they are all protected in there and their locations are kept secret because they don't want them to be damaged. But in Dunbar Cave, you can see it and it's remarkable. Well, what does it look like? You went to Dunbar Cave. What's the experience like? Well, I will say, you know, it doesn't, the art itself doesn't blow your socks off. You know, it's fairly, <laughs> it's fairly simple iconography. It's, it's uh, patterns of circles and, and uh, suns and um, of sort of anamorphic figures that are identified uh, with the Mississippian culture, indigenous culture that flourished about a thousand years ago. And, for- and when you say flourished, I thought this was fascinating. Uh, the Mississippian culture had a city with 30,000 people in it, yes. uh, which is a massive number. You never think of Native American settlements being that large, or I didn't. Maybe the Aztecs or the Incas, but in, in North America, this far north, that to me, that was really surprising. Yeah. Yeah. So that city was at Cahokia, uh, which is near what is now St. Louis. Um, but that culture had a lot of influence throughout the eastern part of North America. And so when archaeologists identified those markings deep in Dunbar Cave, in the midst of all sorts of other graffiti that have, has put, been put in there for hundreds of years, they realized there was something special there. And then they started looking for more. And so it's, it's, it's clues that were left deep underground and that we're, they're still trying to unravel the mystery of it. And of course, mm-hmm. we'll never know really what they meant for sure. the people who created them, what sort of ceremonies were done there. 
But it was clear that caves were really important in their religious tradition. And we know that in part because of oral traditions that have been passed down by the Cherokee are, are, is one of the groups that are part of that lineage leading, leading back to the Mississippian period. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely fascinating. And you, you struggle with how to deal with the element of air. And then I thought you had a very poetic uh, solution you decided to go and watch the Sandhill Crane migration in Nebraska. And that is something that I think anybody could could appreciate. That just sounds spectacular. It is. It is absolutely amazing. It's one of the world's great wildlife displays. Every March, more than a half million Sandhill Cranes converge on a 60-mile stretch of the Platte River Valley in central Nebraska. They're on their way from the southern parts of the United States up to the Arctic Circle, and they spend about a month in Nebraska feeding and gaining weight for the rest of their journey. Now, the weather is always crappy in Nebraska at that time. It's <laughs> cold and brown and windy. You might get snowed on, but it is worth doing. It is just amazing. The primary thing that you do is you go out at dusk and at dawn, and you watch the birds fly in and out of their, their roosting places on the river. And just that experience of being underneath that aerial river of birds and the sounds, and you can hear the beat of the wings, and it is amazing. Yeah, sacred air indeed. Yeah, and the crane, you, you note, has been sacred in many cultures, right? Especially in Asian cultures, yes, where they're a symbol of uh, longevity, of wisdom. The, fo- the practice of uh, folding a thousand cranes in Japanese mm-hmm. culture for, for, to, to fulfill a wish is something that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, but a, just a long tradition of cranes in particular of being considered sacred animals. And, it's, and being among them, I think it's easy to see that. They're, they're incredibly graceful. They're large. They do really intriguing courtship dances. They mate for and life. And they mate for life. Yes, yes. Uh, and so that's you know, kimonos uh, are often embroidered with the with cranes as uh, because they're a sign of marital fidelity. And they're also ancient, ancient birds. They're birds that really do sort of make you think that you know birds really are related to dinosaurs because you can <laughs> sort of see just a hint of a pterodactyl in them. I think. Yeah. No. Uh, when you're describing being under the cranes and and so close to them that that the the thump, thump, thump of their wings beating. You can feel it in your sternum. It just sounds like an incredible experience, an incredible experience for a, a sad reason. Uh, these cranes have have less marshlands to go through, which is why you have so many packed together on this migration route, right? Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like an hourglass where there are a lot of habitat, a lot of um, nesting places in, in the south, and then they're funneled through this narrow stretch of Nebraska, and then they, they fan out as they get to the Arctic Circle. Now, thankfully, cranes are not an, sandhill cranes are not an endangered species, but almost all other crane species are. I mean, I, I, think, I think that one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that uh, we're, we're seeing one of the few, the few species of cranes that is really doing pretty well. But hmm. uh, just, I mean, we still need to really protect that stretch of the Platte River because it's essential to their migratory pattern. Now, did you have a favorite 
of all the places that you went to in researching this book? Well, it's sort of like asking, you know, who's your favorite child? I, I, I <laughs> say that um, I discovered in the writing of the book that I really am a water person in a way that I didn't realize. And it's funny to reach the age I am and not really have a sense for that. But mm. I think part of it is my husband is very much a mountain person. And so a lot of our travels have, you know, pleasure travels have been to the mountains and I love the mountains, but researching water was so much fun for me. And I just sought out water, you know, lakes and streams, and I bought a kayak and <laughs> I, and I just sort of have fallen in love with, with water. And, and so the, this, the trip that I describe in my book is to visit the hot springs of Oregon, where we, where we met a water nymph. I'm pretty <laughs> sure not to read the book to get that full story. So yes, yes. Magical quality about water that I think is, is just magnetic for those of us who love it. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful book. It really has made me so happy these last past uh, couple of days getting to read it. Uh, once again, it's called Every Step is Home. Uh, thank you so much, Lori, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, thank you, Pauline, for having me. Our next guest is Allison Johnson. She is senior editor of a fabulous new book, it's from National Geographic, so you know it's also beautiful to look at. It's called Great Outdoors USA, A Thousand Adventures Across All 50 States. Hey, Allison, welcome to the Farmer Travel Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So this was quite an undertaking. I think this book must weigh about three pounds, and you covered all 50 states. Though I thought it was interesting that you gave 14 pages to each state. That means tiny Rhode Island uh, gets the same amount of coverage as massive Alaska. Was that hard to do? You know, we thought it was going to be tricky at first. We, we knew there would be states like Utah and Colorado that had a ton of outdoor adventures. But we really wanted to make sure this book represented the whole of the country and had an opportunity for everyone to get outside and find something they enjoy. So rather than go by the size of the state, we chose to select 20 outdoor activities in every state so that it was um, fair opportunity across the country. And so uh -huh. that everyone truly, if they open this book, can probably find something they can do within two to five hours from their home. It doesn't always have to be a long-winded vacation. And that was our goal of this book is really showing you that outdoors are for everyone and there's magic to be found right in your own backyard. Well, speaking of your own backyard, you could live in a city and find something in this book. I was surprised to see that you include things like urban bird watching in Chicago, because I, I don't think of outdoors as being in the middle of a city. What was the thought behind reframing uh, the outdoors that way? Yeah, you know, we really wanted no matter where you live, that you could be able to find something you can do outside. And that doesn't mean you know, you have to go mountain biking or hiking, but there are urban destinations that have green spaces that just give you the opportunity to go outside, take a breath, relax in nature. Um, one of my favorites is in Brooklyn, there's a salt marsh botanical garden. So 40 minutes outside of Manhattan, you just hop on a subway train and you get to this great area that you can walk, you can bird watch, you can even kayak. And it's just two hours of your day, possibly, if you live in New York and you're over in Brooklyn for a few hours and you hop back on over for the rest of your weekend. So 
really showing you that even in the most urban of spaces, there is a way to have nature and get fresh air and stretch your legs a little bit, no matter where you are. Right. Yeah, very true. And what you bring to the fore in this book is the incredible diversity of different types of landscapes in the United States. What do you think is going to be the most surprising attraction that you featured for readers? Yeah. So, you know, the one that surprised me the most, um, South Dakota wasn't really on my radar until working on this book. And, you know, I think when people think South Dakota, they think Badlands National Park or Mount Rushmore more likely. And um, one of the places that when I saw the photography from it that took my breath away was a place called Spearfish Canyon that's just loaded with waterfalls, lots of green, verdant landscapes. And it wasn't a place I expected to see in South Dakota, which you think of as more prairie land and rocks. So right. there are surprises like that throughout the book that, you know, Kansas was another one. I remember one of our photo editors saying, I didn't know Kansas looked this diverse when they saw the photos come in. And so I think. Every reader will find a surprise in there, whether it's their, in their own home state, a place they didn't know about, or a place, a state that they never thought they'd want to go to. And you turn right. the page and you see these beautiful images, images and you read about what you can do there and you might actually want to pack your bags and go. Well, what surprised me the most was Alabama, which you say has, I think, the third amount of biodiversity in the country, including bioluminescent creatures like you see in New Zealand. That that was a real shocker to me. Yeah, they have lots of bioluminescent creatures. They have um, fireflies. They have really green, mossy areas. They also have a ton of mountain biking. They have fishing, of course. They have... Uh, you know, you can even go repelling into a sinkhole in Alabama. So there's a lot that you might not have thought existed in Alabama. Which state was the hardest to cut down to just 14 pages, would you say? Which state, you know, if you if you were to devote an entire book <laughs> to one state, which one would it be? You know, I think it would be a, a three-way tie between Utah, Colorado, and Alaska. And actually, if I could throw a fourth one in there, probably Arizona. There is just uh, so much to do in all four of those states and a real diversity of activities. You know, there's hiking and biking, there's forest walks, there's botanical gardens, there's skiing and snowboarding, fishing, you name it, these states have it all. And so those were really tricky to narrow it down. And you know what we asked our travel writers to do that the ones that were really out in the field or they've lived in these states for a really long amount of times was think outside of the box. And so, you know, you know, Utah, Alaska, Colorado, and Arizona all have national parks and great state parks, but what is there outside of those parks? And that really helped us curate it down to 14 pages and 20 activities because we really wanted to get people off the beaten path and try some hidden gems out in these places that are known for being outdoor destinations. Hmm. And what do you think was the weirdest attraction in the book? Oh, goodness. There's one, um, gosh, I'm going to forget what it's called, but it's basically you go boating in cattle tanks. And so, um, what what state is that? Oh in? my gosh, I believe that's in Texas. Um, and uh-huh. so you're on this river in this like old cattle tank, just floating down the river. And we have plenty of tubing and rafting in the book, but this was a different one that I wasn't expecting. So a cattle tank is what is a cattle tank? It's really like um, kind of a metal tank that you're. It's kind of sawed in half. 
And huh. you're just oh, it's actually Nebraska, not Texas. Okay. Um, so it's in Nebraska. It's kind of this metal big tank, kind of what you would think of as a feeding trough almost. And oh, you're just paddling around in this cattle tank on this river. And it's super fun. It looks like a great way to spend an afternoon, but it just surprised me because I think it's the only cattle tank we have in the entire book. <laughs> Well, I guess that's a very green adventure. Somebody decided to reuse something. Yes, so that's exactly. terrific. And I guess that's also the, the maybe not so hidden reason for doing a book like this is, is you want to encourage people to have eco-friendly adventures, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the best things about getting outside is it encourages you to protect the outdoors. You know, we always say at National Geographic, until you experience it, until you see it for yourself, it's hard to really advocate for nature and to, to take the steps to protect our outdoor spaces. And I think encouraging people to get outside to try these things will just inspire them to treasure these places, protect them and save them for generations to come. Yeah. Well, I, I think you can get outside and do that or just look at this beautiful book because uh, as always with Nat Geo, your photos are spectacular. How many people contributed to the photos? And, and, and tell me a little bit about the process of getting them all. Yeah. So we had 10 writers on the book and then countless photographers. There's probably over a hundred photography uh, photographers in this book. Mm. You know, it's 736 pages. And so we really, our photo editors put the call out there. You know, they said, we're looking for photographers in every state. We want to capture these really particular adventures out there. And they really put the groundwork out there. They, all these people had gone out to where these adventures are and got the photos. And I think, you know, whether you're saving up to take a trip somewhere or just want to escape for a little, it's great that you can really travel from your armchair because of how beautiful the photography is throughout the book. Yeah, it really is a hallmark for National Geographic. And it's another great book to dream on. My congratulations to you and your team, Allison. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. To those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Watching cable.